Welcome to Kings River Life's Mystery Rats Maze podcast, where we share with you mystery short stories and first chapters of mystery novels read by local actors. This episode features the first chapter of Fostering Death, a Jesse Damon crime novel written by K.M. Rockwood and read by local actor Thomas Nance. Fostering Death was published by Wildside Press in March of 2015. Jesse Damon has spent most of the last 20 years in prison on a murder conviction. He was 16 when his older brothers persuaded him to act as a lookout while they robbed a drug dealer. The robbery went wrong and the dealer was shot. The brothers took off, leaving a confused Jesse to take the blame. Now paroled, he's trying to beat the odds and walk the straight and narrow with a pair of overactive cops watching him for mistakes. He's got a one-room apartment, a job working the overnight shift at a steel factory, and sometime girlfriend named Kelly. If he can just stay out of trouble, he may even be able to join the union and have some job security. But when he pays his last respects to Mrs. Coleman, his foster mother, he discovers her death is being investigated as a murder, and he is the prime suspect. She didn't have to die. Mr. Coleman, aged considerably in the twenty years since I'd last seen him, lifted a crisp handkerchief to dab his eyes. Blue veins snaked over his trembling hands. Especially like that. His voice was thin. A plump lady in a big hat took his other hand and patted it gently. Your wife will get her reward in heaven. She believed in the Lord and she helped so many unfortunate children. Trying to be as invisible as possible, I eased myself back among the flower arrangements on easels, choking on the cloying scent of chrysanthemums. I rubbed my freshly shaved face with my rough hand. Maybe I shouldn't have come. The mortician did a good job, the lady said. She could be asleep, quite natural. Mr. Coleman glanced into the coffin, then quickly looked away, straight at me. His already pale face was paler. What are you doing here? he asked, his reedy voice rising. Other conversations ceased as all eyes turned toward me. I'd been right. I shouldn't have come. He looked me over, head to foot. And you couldn't even dress properly? Inwardly, I winced. I clutched my jacket to my chest, folded so its black lining showed instead of the garish red plaid. I'd worn my darkest flannel shirt and clean jeans. The work boots were the only footwear I owned. When you wrote her that letter from prison, didn't I write back to tell you she never wanted to hear from you again? Yes, sir. I never tried to write her again. What made you think you'd be welcome here? I'd been among the dozen of foster children who'd passed through the Coleman's house over the years. Mrs. Coleman was the closest thing to a mother I'd ever known. I said, I'm sorry, sir. I didn't mean no disrespect. She meant a lot to me. His quivering voice grew even louder. I find that hard to believe. You were a huge disappointment to her. 
She looked on you as almost her own, keeping you for all these years. She thought she saw something in you. But she was wrong, wasn't she? I had no answer for that. I inched toward the door. She cried after she read about you in the newspaper. Did you know that? No, sir, I said. I'm, I'm sorry. Sorry doesn't quite cut it, does it? Fury blazed in his pale eyes. Since when do they let killers out of prison anyhow? Everyone was staring at me. I didn't think this was a good time to start explaining about parole. Two burly men in somber suits were bearing down on me. I turned and strode out of the viewing room to the entry hall. As I skirted to stand by the door, the lady standing next to it chirped, Don't forget to sign the visitor's book, and tried to hand me a slim gold pen. I ignored her and kept on going, out the front door and down the granite steps, which were getting slippery from the falling sleet. Angry at myself, I swiped my face with my sleeve. For the first time in years, I couldn't will away the tears that stung my eyes. I stumbled at the bottom of the steps and turned into the alley next to the funeral home, anxious to get away from everyone. A few feet down, I stopped and took a shuddering breath. After the overheated air in the funeral home, the fresh air felt good as I gulped it into my lungs. Maybe it would help clear my head. How could I have been stupid enough to come here? What did I think was going to happen? That I'd find a connection with my past? That we'd all link arms and sing Kumbaya together? All I'd managed to do was upset Mr. Coleman when he could least afford more grief. It made myself feel crummy in the process. I shivered and shifted the jacket in my hands, trying to unfold it. Well, look who's here, Detective Montgomery. Jesse Damon, a voice said behind me. Interesting indeed, Detective Belkin. I have to admit, I hadn't expected to see him here. Didn't sound like he was particularly welcome. Detectives from the local police force... Of course they'd recognize me. Since my release from prison, Belkins especially had taken it upon himself to make sure I knew I was being watched. With the cuff of my shirt, I swiped at my eyes again. I wasn't going to let them know I'd been crying. Belkins tapped me on the shoulder, hard. You know the routine, Damon. Drop the jacket, assume the position. I tossed my jacket onto the damp asphalt, trying to avoid the slushing puddles. I spread my feet and leaned on the rough brick wall of the funeral home, bracing on my hands. Anything on you we should know about? Montgomery asked as he stepped up behind me. Weapons? Drugs? Anything you want to tell us about? No, sir. I had more sense than to have anything I shouldn't be carrying. I wasn't about to violate parole over something stupid like that. Quick, professional hands frisked me, removing the wallet and key ring with its single key from my jean pocket, skimming over my clothes, under my arms and between my legs. Montgomery's strong, dark hand reached up and grabbed my wrist, pulling my hand behind my back and turning the palm out. I felt the familiar cold bite of handcuffs. He repeated the motion with my other hand, tightening them enough to hurt. I knew Belkins would have put them on even tighter.
Turn around slowly, Montgomery said. I turned around, trying to shake the dark, curly hair out of my eyes. Montgomery was pulling a pair of fur-lined leather gloves over his manicured hands. My wallet and keychain laid on the pavement next to my jacket. Both of the detectives were dressed warmly. Belkins wore a squash fedora on his head, melting sleet dripping from the brim. His teeth clenched an unlit cigar. Montgomery stood a head above him, his mahogany face handsome above his spotless tan trench coat, a jaunty hat perched on his shaven head. I wondered how he managed to look so unrumpled and dry, standing out in the sleet. Damon knows his place, doesn't he? Knows there's no point in objecting. Belcombe's chomped on the cigar, his watery blue eyes squinting to meter slits above his bulbous red nose. Montgomery frowned at him and turned back to me. You're still on parole, aren't you, Jesse? he said, his voice deceptively friendly. Yes, sir. They knew the answer to that. They also knew that if I was on parole, they didn't need a warrant to detain me or bring me in for questioning. Not even a reasonable cause of suspicion. Belkins reached out and jerked up the leg of my jeans. No black box? he asked. When did you get off home detention? A little while ago, sir. He shook his head. Don't know what your P.O. was thinking. I saw no point in trying to answer that. What are you doing here? Montgomery asked. Mrs. Coleman was my foster mother, just wanted to pay my last respects. Don't think that was a particularly good idea. Montgomery adjusted the scarlet muffler a bit tighter around his neck. Shivering as the melting sleet dripped off my hair and down the back of my shirt, I shook my head. How did you know where the viewing was being held? he asked. I saw a funeral notice, I said, in the newspaper at the library. Belkins raised his bushy eyebrows. The library? Did you know we could read Montgomery? Oh, Jesse's nobody's dummy. Montgomery rocked back on his well-sawed heels. Does some stupid things sometimes, but he's smart. Not smart enough to mind his own business. Belkins took the cigar out of his mouth and peered at me. Do you know how she died? I hadn't thought much about it. She wasn't young, and in all the years I'd known her, she'd never really been in good health. All I'd read in the paper was when the viewing and the funeral would be. Not really, I said. Montgomery just stared at me, his dark eyes giving me no hint to what was going on in his mind. I forced myself not to fidget. It had to be a natural death, or maybe an accident. Who would have killed Mrs. Coleman? Belcombe's looked like he thought he knew someone who would. Me. Somebody killed her? I blurted out. Instantly, I regretted saying anything. I made a mental note to get to the library and check out the newspapers, for the past few days, see if I could find anything out. Assuming, of course, I didn't get locked up right away. You tell me, Montgomery said, his eyes boring into my face. I looked down at my boots. Refresh my memory, Damon, Belkins said, staring at the unlit end of the cigar. How long were you in prison? 
just under 20 years. And what was the conviction? He knew all this. He just wanted to make me say it. Murder, conspiracy, possession of a handgun during the commission of a felony. And you pleaded guilty? An Alford plea. That plea, not admitting guilt, but conceding that the state had enough evidence for a conviction, had been a problem from the start. Parole boards and counselors like to hear convicts express remorse. Hard to do when you're not admitting guilt. That's right. Wouldn't take responsibility, huh? Belcom stuck the cigar back in his mouth. Then or now. Montgomery changed the subject. Still working night shifts at the quality steel fabrication, Jesse? Yes, sir. Still driving a forklift? Montgomery tugged his collar a bit more snugly around his neck. Yes, sir. When I check with them, will they tell me you've been missing a lot of work? No, sir. I've been there every night, as if I could afford to take a night off. Between paying the rent on my little basement apartment and the monitoring expenses for parole, I didn't have much money to spare. Belcombs adjusted his hat, shielding his face better from the sleet. I say we haul him downtown and see what we can find out. No sense standing in the cold here. I want to see who else comes to the viewing, Montgomery said. We can get someone else to take him in and hold him until we're done here. Montgomery eyed me. His gloved hand stroked the cleft in his chiseled chin. Out of the corner of my eye, I saw people leaving the funeral home and turning down the alley. They stopped when they saw us and retreated. I felt the drip of melting sleet from my wet hair down the neck of my shirt become a rivulet. The shirt was already drenched, so I guess it didn't really matter. It's my anniversary, Montgomery said. Cecily and I have reservations for dinner. She won't be happy if I tell her I'm working late. A mean smile played on Belkin's lips. I've got no plans for tonight. I can see what I can get out of him. My gut tightened. Belcombs wouldn't be particular about the methods he used for interrogation. I didn't really want to face him alone. Montgomery was young and hungry. He wouldn't want anything on his record that might stand between him and a promotion. Much better for me if he were present. But there wasn't a damn thing I could do if they decided to run me in. We know where he lives and where he works, Montgomery said. We can always pick him up or ask his P.O. to hold him when he reports in. He's not going anywhere. True, Belcombs continued to grin at me. He knows he'll be locked up for the rest of his life if he takes off, which is where he belongs. Besides, you know he's not likely to tell us much anyhow. Montgomery checked his watch. I bet I could get him to tell me something. Belcombe's grin turned into a leer. Montgomery glanced over at him. Does us no good to get information we can't use in court? Belcombe shrugged. Montgomery grabbed me by the elbow and spun me around. He unlocked the handcuffs. It took an effort, but I didn't rub my numb wrists. I knew better than to move until they told me to. I stood looking at my wallet and the keychain as they lay where the brick wall met the cracked asphalt of the alley. 
The slush puddle was swallowing them rapidly. Montgomery finally said, You can go. For now. Another group of people stepped out of the funeral home and straggled across the entry to the alley. I leaned down, scooping up my wallet and keychain. Then I picked my jacket up from the wet pavement and turned down the alley, away from everyone. I took a tentative step, expecting Belcombe's to change his mind and tell me to stop. And don't even think about going to the church funeral service, Montgomery called after me. That poor old man's been through enough. He was right about that. I kept my gaze straight ahead and kept going. I didn't know where the alley went. With my luck, it would probably dead end at a garage. I'd climb a fence to avoid walking back past them if it came to that, or hide behind a dumpster until the alley was clear again. What did they throw out in dumpsters behind funeral homes, anyhow? I turned at the corner of the building and saw an opening between the garage and another building. I walked toward it, hoping it was a through walkway. It was. I didn't let myself glance back until I was halfway down it. No one was in sight. The detectives weren't following me. I unfolded my jacket and put it on. It was damp, but at least it blocked the needles of sleet that were driving into my shirt. I pulled the watch cap out of the pocket and pulled it over my head. Wool holds body heat even when it's wet, although I wasn't sure my body was producing any heat to speak of. I emerged on the street behind the funeral home and saw a patrol car idling by the corner. The driver eyed me as I turned in the opposite direction and walked away. After a few blocks, I thought I heard the sound of a car close to the curb following me. But between the wind and the sound of the sleet hitting the sidewalk, it might have been just my overactive imagination hearing things. That area between my shoulder blades, the place where inmate would be stenciled in white letters on an orange prison jumpsuit, itched. Word was it was positioned so the tower guard would have a target to shoot for in an escape attempt. I wish I'd taken the opportunity back in the alley to check to see if anything I didn't know about was in my pants pocket. I didn't doubt Belcombe's might slip me some crystal meth or something if he thought he could get away with it. But it had been Montgomery who had frisked me, and he was too professional for that kind of nonsense. I hoped. Shoving my hands into the jacket pockets, I ducked my head into the wind. I wasn't going to give anybody watching the satisfaction of seeing me check my pants pockets or even look back to see if someone was following me. One good thing about the sleet, my face was so wet it hid any tears. When I turned the corner to head toward the aging building where I rented a basement apartment, the patrol car was sitting in the alley. They must have swung around the block. Or maybe it was another car. Had a car been following me? I entirely my imagination? Without breaking my stride, I glanced back. A battered blue pickup truck was creeping along the curb, lights out. What was that all about? I couldn't see a cop, undercover or otherwise, being caught dead in a pickup in that bad shape. I looked back at the patrol car. It was pulled up to the dead-end alley that the single window of my apartment looked out on. 
Its nose hung over the sidewalk. I'd have to pass it to get to the stairs that led down from the sidewalk to my front door. As I approached, the cop in the passenger seat, a, a woman with her hair pulled back in a severe bun, rolled down the window. She stared at me. I didn't stop or make eye contact, but I did take my hand out of my pockets and let them hang by my side. No point giving anyone an excuse to go for a taser. I'd never been tased myself, but I'd seen it done and it didn't look pleasant. I had no desire to experience it firsthand. Resisting an urge to wipe my eyes again, I concentrated on keeping my breathing regular. I'd keep walking if they didn't say anything to me. If Montgomery had slipped something into my pockets and told them to search me, they'd stop me. Unless they were waiting for me to go so they could search the apartment. Not that they need reasonable suspicion for that either. The parole papers I'd signed gave permission for warrantless searches any time. Biting my lip, I reminded myself that the parole was well worth all the restrictions that came with it. My apartment might be a dingy single room with a kitchenette in one corner and a tiny bathroom off in another, but as long as I paid the rent, it was mine. And the key that opened the door was in my own pocket, not hung on some correctional officer's belt. The cop made no move to open the door. Another advantage to the weather. She wasn't going to get out of the warm, dry car unless she had to. As I approached the top of the stairs, I listened for someone to shout, Stop! But no one did. I slipped my hands into my pockets and hunched down in my jacket. The sleet looked like it might be changing to snow. I didn't look back. That would only make me look nervous and guilty. The cops were going to keep a close eye on me. It went with the territory. Cops don't like parolees. They were sure I was up to something. They were waiting for what? Something I said or did that they thought tied me to Mrs. Coleman's death and anything else they could incidentally pin on me. That meant detectives investigating her death would probably put a lot of their efforts into trying to show that I'd killed her. Unfortunately, that meant they might not investigate what had actually happened. Montgomery might be my best bet. If I could find out anything useful, he would listen and look into it. Solving a homicide would be a big deal. And a detective bucking for promotion didn't want to be a part of a team that made an arrest that ended in an acquittal. Or worse, in a conviction that was reversed on appeal. I did have one advantage over any official investigation. I knew I hadn't killed Mrs. Coleman. Salt crunched underfoot as I approached the outdoor stairs down to my apartment. The janitor had spread it to keep ice from forming. I heard the heavy thunk of a vehicle's door slamming. This reading of Fostering Death was produced by Kings River Life and directed by Lori Lewis Ham. Fostering Death is available for purchase. You can learn more about this book and others in the series on the author's website, kmrockwood.com. Check out Kings River Life Magazine's websites for more mystery, local theater, animal rescue, and so much more. kingsriverlife.com and krlnews.com.
Now, we'll be back next time with another mystery short story or mystery first chapter. Subscribe to our podcast to make sure you don't miss a single episode. And follow us on Twitter to keep up with everything KRL, at Kings River Life. Until next time, this is your announcer, Jim Tuck, wishing you a life full of mystery.